0: We have reached the end of chapter one. I intended to finish it last year um, and we're beginning this year uh, in James at the end of chapter one. Uh, traditionally I don't do new resolution New year's resolution sermons. I've never done that. Um, if you want to go ahead and do New year's resolutions, by all means go um, just stick to it. If you are planning to start reading your Bible this year, uh, stick to it. If you are finishing and uh, reading that you uh, did last year, well, good. And uh, continue to uh, honor God by reading His Word. This morning, I'm going to speak to those who are active in the work of the Lord. Last time I preached, we spoke about those or to those. <clears throat> Who hear the word and refuse to be active. They hear the preaching of God's word. As James puts it, they look into the law that brings liberty. They look into the word of God, but walk away forgetting what they have seen. This morning we speak about those people who hear the word and do the word. But their doing is with the wrong motive. So this is going to be a very painful service. Because most of us are active in some aspect of ministry. I mentioned that these verses, verse 19 through to 27, forms part of a response to verse 18. James has given us the result of verse 18 in Verse 19. He gave us the expectation of verse 18 in verse 21 through to verse 25. And this morning we will look at the application of verse 18 in verse 26 and verse 27. So fundamental to this passage is verse 18, understanding the weight and the theology of verse 18 helps us understand what verse 19 through to 27 is all about. Verse 18 speaks about God giving life to those who are dead. It is God who brings us forth. The only reason you need to be brought forth is because you don't have life prior to God giving life to people. So James sits at the heart of his theology the sovereign work of God in salvation, and he says, this is what God does to you. He changes you by giving you a new heart and thereby a new desire and a new nature. That is what we have seen from verse 19 through to 25. A changed life is demonstrated in how the believer lives in the new covenant. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That is a response to the work of God. There is a change of life. You don't live the way that you used to. Then there is an expectation that this new covenant has upon the believer, which we have seen in verse 22 through to 25. But be he doers of the word, not hearers only. It's not enough to say I'm here every Sunday to hear God speak. It's not enough. James says you've got to do something with the word. You've got to apply it to your life. And now, I'm going to be speaking about application, but one of the things that I found when we think of application, we think of a list of things to do. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. Well, James gives us an application in. Theology form. Verse 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That is what not to do. Verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That is what to do. That's application. James is not giving us a list of things to do. He's saying, well, if verse 18 is true, then this should be the outcome. And so we will look at that this morning. As I mentioned that James never lets go of the theology of God's sovereignty and salvation in verse 18. The entire section, as we will see also, the entire book flows back to that theology. If verse 18 is true then your faith will be demonstrated in works. Then you will not discriminate based on appearance. Then you will have wisdom and you will not be worldly. James links everything back to this fundamental theological truth. Now as we begin, we'll take some time this morning to meditate only on verse 26. Uh, we will get to verse 27 next week. And then the following week, we will look at the last part of verse 27 to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. I want to show how that verse is understood today and what James means when he speaks about visiting orphans and widows. This morning, we will see what unworthy religion looks like, how wrong perception of reality and Unworthy religion leads to deception. In verse 17, we have the positive element of religion. How religion can be God-glorifying. How it can be unselfish. How it can be undefiled. But that is next week. This morning, I will give you two truths, and it should emerge from the passage, that illustrate that unworthy religion is blind. And secondly... Unworthy religion deceives. That's my two points. And that's, I believe, the point that James is making. Unworthy religion is blind. And unworthy religion deceives. Now look with me at James 1, 26 through to 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. It is worthless. James makes unworthy religion as the outcome of a wrong perception. A wrong perception of reality. See, religious observation or duty is not enough. Just doing stuff is Not enough to say that you are saved. Let me say it this way. Works in and of itself is not a sign of genuine salvation. Works independent of God's saving grace can still exist. Meaning that there are people who are in this church and other churches that are serving God's people but are not saved. That is what James is talking about. Unworthy religion is I will look at the first part of verse 26. Uh, Firstly, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue. Let's pause there. The subject under discussion here, the person that James is talking about, is this little word, anyone. If anyone thinks this way. That means it's anybody, right? Not just believers, anyone. This is not limited to a selected few. It is true of any person that has this perception of his own religious life. Now, what is the problem here? There is an opinion that they have. Their opinion is that they are experiencing true worship. Look at what he says. If anyone thinks he is religious. Now, James tests this theory. They are thinking that they are religious because they are doing stuff. They are thinking they are in a relationship with God because they are merely serving. James says, okay, if that is true, let me see if we can understand this. What does he mean by this word consider or think in some translations? This verb is often used of false opinions. It reflects the subjective mental estimation or opinion about some matter. In this case, it is a person's religiosity. He's got a false perception or false opinion about his activity in worship. This word is used in Matthew chapter three, verse nine, where John the Baptist says of the Pharisees, "Do not, do not suppose that you can save yourselves. We are Abraham, or Abraham as our father, or we have Abraham as our father." They had wrong thinking. In chapter six, verse seven, in Matthew, uh, Jesus says, "When they pray, meaning the Pharisees." With meaningless uh, repetition, they have the false opinion that God is hearing them. They think God hears them. They have the false perception that their prayers are heard. They are doing religiosity. They are doing things which is true of faith, right? But Jesus says they are of the false opinion to think that God is actually listening to them. In chapter 26 verse 53, Jesus says, do you Think that I cannot appeal to my father? Wrong thinking. So the opposite is true. I can appeal to my father if I want to. There are some positive uses, but the most common usage in the New Testament is falsely thinking, to to reason incorrectly, to have the wrong perception of reality. In other words, people who think this way are blind to themselves. They are blind to reality. They don't see themselves for who they are. They don't see their worship for what it is. Luther translates this portion of scripture in this way, and I quote, If anyone imagines himself to be religious. I like that. He imagines it. It's not real. It's a figment of his imagination. It captures the sense of this word. It is not true. See, false and unworthy religion blinds the worshiper. They view themselves as religious. Take note of the way in which James says this. If anyone thinks, he himself thinks, he is religious, he deceives himself. If anyone supposes, have a personal opinion, perception, imagines himself to be something that is not, he is engraved. Danger is what James is saying. There's intensity added to the meaning of this word by the tense that it is found in. And James says that he continually thinks of himself in this way. He continually thinks he is religious. He constantly thinks of his acts of worship as being acceptable before God. And he thinks that he has an audience with God. James is not so quick. Your thinking is wrong. There's a conflict with reality. His perception of himself does not measure up with what is true of himself. That is blindness. Why should we be concerned about this? Well, the answer to this question is uh, the choice of this little word, religion. James could have chosen a lot of words to express worship, but he chose a word that has significance in their culture. It is important to note that at the time of this writing, James is not thinking of a system of belief as we think of religion today. When we speak of religion, we think maybe of Catholicism or um, Buddhism or whatever there is. We think of that as being a religion they did not think that. It could be used of any kind of act of worship. In the Bible, it takes on a different meaning to what we think of today. It is often spoken of with regards to religious practices, the doing of worship. Such as offerings, ceremonial cleansing, rituals, and sometimes it was used of magic or even exorcism. It was not just used of true faith. It was used as a broad broad spectrum word to speak of any kind of practice that took place in any kind of worship, whether it was false or true. It is connected to a variety of ceremonial and cultic practices so not just through worship it refers to religious observations to rites and rituals rituals such as prayer or fasting cleansing offerings partaking of elements devotional worship so this could apply to both true religion and fake religion this word can be observed in acts 26 where paul describes his life as a pharisee and take note what he says They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. A Pharisee saved. No. Uh, Maybe Nicodemus was. Uh, Peter will (laughs) clear that up for us. (laughs) Um, But... Religion here is not used of a system of belief, but the external activity that defines who they are as Pharisees. He's referring to that external observations that is being done by these men. This does not mean that Paul was at that time as a Pharisee engaging in true worship. Far from it. They were merely performing self-deceiving rituals, the rituals of Judaism you get the same idea in the cultic worship of angels in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship, that is our word, of angels. Religion of angels. The practice of things relating to worshiping angels. Don't be deceived. Let no one disqualify you by saying we should do these things. Listen to what he says. Going on in detail about visions. Sounds familiar? Think about the way people are talking about their experience with God. It's generally about visions that they are having with either angels or Christ. Puffed up without a reason by his sensuous mind not holding fast to the head. In other words, this guy is far removed from reality. Paul explains that people who engage in such worship have deceived themselves. And you see that in Colossians 2.23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made, here's a word, religion and asceticism. That is the severe practice of self-denial and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, they are practicing all these things to, to keep themselves from doing wrong, to keep the flesh from indulging itself in itself, but they can't. Why? Because the heart has not been changed. External tappings, that is this word. External observances. Why do they partake of this? Because it's a self Made blinding religion which majors on the external. Do this, don't do that. Rules and regulations. As long as you do this, you'll be safe. You'll be saved. Could be used of acts of worship such as function, this liturgy, this religious observation, this ceremony, this rite. All you have to do is do this and you'll be fine. This is why we have to be so careful about legalism. This is a self-made religion that God hates. The word is used in a positive way in verse 27. A religion that is pure and undefiled. But in verse 26, the word has a negative connotation. External observances, ritualistic in a cultic sense. It is akin to. To worship. Thus, the idea here is that if a person thinks or considers himself to be a true worshiper, to perform true rituals or rites, true observing of what is required by God, he thinks is good, but in reality is not. I give to the church, I come every week, I help the poor. Surely these external works must say that I am saved, right? James is not so quick. Works in and of itself is not a sign of salvation. Listen to God's reply to external forms of worship, Hosea 6.6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That is weighty. God gave sacrifices and offerings as a part of the covenant relationship with them. But God says, when you do the rituals without a heart change, I am not interested in that. If you do not know me, don't offer to me. Now there's a caveat here in what James is saying. He says that this guy, he, in his own eyes, he is religious. Yet he cannot control his tongue. Look at the text. If anyone thinks that his worship is true, that is a religious person that is right with God, is the idea that his practice of religion is right, but does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. There is something that shows that his religion is fake. What is it? Notice it is not his works. But he's what? Words. Words on his tongue shows who he really is. So what he perceives to be real in actuality may not be real. So let's consider what James means here. If you remember last time we looked at verse 22 through to 25. The substance of that passage is be doers of the word. James commands them to do the word. Read with me, verse 22. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. There James says it is not enough to, to merely go to church and sit under the word. In this context here, it's the synagogue. It's not enough to go to the synagogue and hear the word read or taught. It's not enough. You've got to apply the word to life. But James almost seems to say the opposite here. He says if anyone thinks that he can do the things... That is required of religion, but does not bridle his tongue, he receives his heart. It is not enough to be doers, is what James is saying. Not enough to do. Here we have the opposite of what the hearers only do. Here we have the religious doer. If you will, the doer only. He's keen on getting his hands dirty. He's willing to serve. He's willing to to do stuff for the Lord. He wants to pack away chairs. He wants to set up the sound. Not, Not that I'm thinking of anybody specific. He wants to sing. He wants to teach and preach. He wants to do stuff. But his tongue gives him away. Or should I say, their tongue gives them away because it applies both to men and women. James says, okay, you want to serve? Well, let's examine your doing. If you are only a doer, if you do this ritually, you're thinking it's part of what God desires for you to be right with him, your doing is going to please him is what you're thinking. He says, you are wrong. James' point in verse 26 is that doers only are just as bad as hearers only. The hearer is self-deceived. Look at verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. The doer only is self-deceived. Look at verse 26. But if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but what? Deceives his heart. The outcome is the same. The hearer only deceives himself. The doer only deceives his heart. The outcome is the same because James is talking about the same person. There are those who... Hears the word. They look at the law. They see their own, literally, the face of their birth. The face of his genesis. The face that he was born with. He sees himself who he is and he walks away. That guy's deceived. And now he says there's a guy who doesn't pay much attention to the word, but he does everything that people require of him. He does the religious right. He comes and he prays with us. He worships with us. That guy, he's not a doer of the word. He's a doer of his own religion." Why? Because the outcome is the same. Both of them are deceived. The hearer knows the truth but does not respond to the truth. While the doer only does the truth but his heart is not changed by the truth. That is a dangerous place to be in. Both are dangerous. The force of this verbal adjective, deceived, here yeah, shows that he is a continual state of deception. He is deceiving himself on a continual basis. He deceives his own heart. So let's put this in perspective. James is writing to a Jewish audience in a Jewish context. Chapter 2, verse 2, I believe it is. He says, if anybody comes, or was it one? Uh, verse 2, any man comes in with fine clothing into your assembly that were their synagogue, synagoge. If anybody comes into your assembly or your, your synagogue with rich clothing and youth clothing and you think more of him than of the, the poor man, then there's something wrong with your faith. So he's talking about Jews who are meeting in the synagogue who has an external application of the word. They're doing the rights and the rules that is required most probably by the Pharisees at this time. James says it is not enough. To do things is not enough. But James here is talking about doing things as part of the new covenant In Jesus Christ, verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we could be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. If God has saved you, there will be signs, there will be fruits of salvation. This person is a diligent performer of ceremonial activity. He's doing the right things. He does the outward expression of worship and service to God. They do. They act in a way that seems right to us. However, James says, It is not enough. If profession of the truth does not filter to the application of the truth, then the truth has not changed the heart. If there is a dutiful work of worship that does not come from a changed heart, demonstrated in the lack of control of the tongue, then that worship is not true before God. Let me put it in language that we can understand. Church attendance, giving to the church, helping the poor, packing up chairs, praying, fasting, means nothing if you cannot control your tongue. With that in mind, listen to what James says. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. What is he saying? One's religion is defined by how one uses his tongue. The lack of the tongue here speaks of a deeper problem that is resident in the heart of man. It leads into chapter two, but we'll look at that at a later stage. This means it is not enough to think of oneself as being religious or performing the acts of worship when there's no control of the smallest member of the human body, which is the tongue. James shows that the worshiper who has no control over his tongue really has no religion at all. I should say it this way, that he has a religion, but his religion is not true before God. Outward religion must flow from an inward change. How do we know that James is talking about an inward change? Well, he says, if this person thinks that they religion, but at the same time as he's thinking about his religion, his, uh, he cannot control his tongue, at that same time, when those things two happen together, he's saying that this guy, his worship is worthless because he deceives himself. I've mentioned this before quite a few times. James is not writing in a vacuum. He's not giving some general principles how we should live and how we should not live. James is stating a theological truth, the same truth that Jesus emphasized. And this is it For the mouth speaks of what? uh, Of that which fills the heart. Remember that? What is in the heart comes out where? On your lips. Matthew fifteen eleven. It's not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but what proceeds out of his mouth that defiles the man. Verse eighteen. But things that proceed out of the mouth comes from the what? Heart. Keep that in mind. Listen to James again. If anyone thinks he is religious, does not bridle his tongue. Deceives his heart. There's a close, close relation between the tongue and the heart. They are synonymous in Jewish thought. The Old Testament makes it pretty clear. We just don't have the time to go through every verse that deals with that. But in the Jewish mind, the tongue is the thermometer of the heart. You can tell a guy by listening, tell who the guy is by listening to his speech. Proverbs filled with speech that demonstrated the guy is a fool. Who you are is made manifest on your lips. James says the person who thinks his worship is acceptable but has no control over his tongue. What does that mean? It means there is no control over his heart. That guy's in trouble. The word bridle here literally means to lead with a bridle or to guide by means of a bridle. You can think horse. That's literally how it's used. The sense is that there's a continuous action and habitual unbridling. He cannot control his mouth. What is James saying? These external trappings, this external public worship means nothing if the heart is not changed. How we know the heart is not changed is you listen to his tongue. Listen to his words. Let me say it this way. If the tongue is not controlled, then the heart is not converted. Make sense? If you cannot control what you say, there is something wrong in your heart. It is interesting that the result of being in the new covenant, the result of God bringing us forth, is stressed in verse 19. Notice what he says. Know this, my beloved brothers. Every person must be. That's a command. Every person must be Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. There is an immediate effect of God's work in your life, and it's demonstrated how you relate to the word, how you speak to people, and how you control your anger. This is more than just keeping your mouth, control of the tongue, he does get to that in chapter 3. But there it relates specifically to cursing people. Speaking ill of God's creation, meaning those who bear the image of God. James says this should never come from a child of God. Turn over to chapter 3. Listen to what he says. Verse 7. Every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed. And has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. Full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Now he's going to make the separation. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same from the same opening, fresh and salt water? The answer is no. How then can a child of God spew both curses and blessing? That is not a child of God. That is his point here. It should never come from a child of God. So when he speaks about controlling the tongue, this is what he's speaking about. When you cannot help yourself but speak ill of people, there is a problem. This failure, which is evil, appears repeatedly in Jewish literature. Psalm 34, 13 says this. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit or lies. This is what the man of God, the child of God, ought to be like. There is a world of difference between the one who is religious and the one who thinks he is religious. Both their actions will confirm if their tongues, uh, by their tongues, will, will be confirmed by their tongues. James carves a canyon between the fresh stream and the salty water. It is not the same thing. You can drink both. You can drink fresh water and you can drink salt water. You can go ahead and drink it. Fresh water will nourish your soul, well, your person. Salt water will kill you. Both are not for nourishing. That's what James is saying. You cannot have blessing and cursing come from the same person if that person is saved. His lips change. Why? Because his heart has been changed. A changed heart is seen in a changed speech. But if there's no change in speech, then the source of the speech has not been changed, which is the heart. This is exactly what James has been speaking about in chapter 1. I've been pointing to this reality for a whole year now. The reason he starts with tests and trials is because if your faith is genuine, God will be putting you into what? Hardship and affliction. Why? To test it. But not for God Himself. God doesn't need to test your faith to figure out if you are saved. He puts you in trials to demonstrate to those around you and yourself that you are His. That is why James starts with trials and tests. And he says, those of you who are in trials, those of you who are going through hardship, you can't all joy. Why? Because you have genuine faith. That is, your why, that is why you're being tested. Then he says, don't blame God for your temptation, because temptation comes from an evil heart. Your depravity, your sinful nature doesn't come from God. Then he proves why, verse 18. It is God who changes the heart, because God gives birth, um, gives birth to, the, to the dead. So if God changes the heart, then also he has control of the tongue. the heart is made manifest through the tongue. The one who thinks he is a true worshiper cannot see his own state because unworthy religion blinds your observer. Secondly, my time is up, but I will finish this quickly. Unworthy religion deceives. What is meant by the fact that he deceives his own heart? Again, James mentions the heart because when he mentions tongue, uh, he, there is a connection to heart, and so it is very easy for him to make that connection. The uncontrolled tongue gives insight into the state of the heart. James tells us that this person deceives himself. Grammatically, there's a connection between tongue and heart. What this means is that the deception of the heart is equal to the untamed or unbridled tongue. The one takes place while the other is realized. The lack of control of the tongue means that there's deception in the heart. There is deception in the heart because there's a lack of control of the tongue. There is deception because he does not know that his heart has not been changed. He is in a continual state of deception. He is continually thinking that his religion is good enough for God. James says, it is not. The sad reality is that doing without a heart change, without a life change, without a desire to be obedient to God, To love God and His Word and His people means nothing before God. It is worthless, and that's what James says. It is a worthless religion. Before I explain that, it is interesting that James chooses the heart here at the end of this verse. He's pointing to the fact that if the heart is not changed, you cannot expect those works to produce. Any pleasure before God. An unchanged heart cannot produce worship that is worthy before God. Why? Why well, he's deceived. I find it hard to believe that James is talking about believers here. And many commentaries say, well, clearly James is talking about a disobedient believer. And so uh, believers who have no control over their tongue." Yeah, I don't think so. Because he makes a contrast to religion that is worthy. This is the religion that is unworthy. In verse 27, that is the religion that is worthy. And if you are part of the unworthy religion, you don't have a religion before God. So it cannot be believers who are just being disobedient, who have no control over their tongue. This is an unbeliever. James is consistently putting these two up against each other. And you'll see that as we move forward. The hearer only, the doer only, the person who hears and does not obey is just as bad as the one who does and does not want to hear the word of God. This kind of religion has no value before God. No value. It's an unworthy religion. There's a this word this points back to his religion. Um, this religion or this person's religion, it identifies that he has his own religion. He's made up a religion of his own making. How? By doing things and thinking that he's doing is pleasing to God. What is that? That is works-based religion. That is works-based salvation. That is works-based pleasure to God. And that brings no pleasure to God at all. James says "As a religious practices that you engage in. If there is no fruit on the tongue, there is no change of the heart. Religion that has no ethical results is not a religion that God honors. That is deception. Working because you think that God will honor your efforts? You think somehow that God will be pleased with all that you're doing? That's deception. The only work that God is pleased with is the work on the cross of Calvary. That is the only work that God will accept as being sufficient for your salvation. That is the only work that brings pleasure to God. That is why the scripture says that he created um, us for good works. The good works is placed in Christ. The only way that you can produce good works that pleases God is by being in Christ You can never please God without being in Christ. See, good works that does not flow from the cross is not good works at all. In other words, worthless religion is an activity that thinks that they bring pleasure to God by doing many things for God. The reality is that they're doing it for themselves. Let me make this last point and then I'll end on that. I want you to see the weight of this worthless religion. Self-deceiving works that God hates. This word worthless at the end of the verse here is used normally in an idolatrous context. Jeremiah 2.5 speaks of Israel going after worthless, worthless things and then becoming worthless. Why? It's idolatry. In the New Testament, worthless is used for describing the futility of idolatry. You can write this down, Acts chapter 14, 15, Romans 1, 21, Romans 8, 20, and Ephesians 4, 17. James is making a really radical statement here. This is why I believe he's not talking about a believer. The uncontrolled tongue combined with a ritualistic real, worship is no different to the practice of idolatrous pagan worship. Think about that. If you are doing things to please God, if you are doing things apart from the cross of Jesus Christ without being saved and you are serving, that is no different than worshipping an idol. Uncontrolled speech and self-deception is a form of idolatry. Why? Because they, they both depend on external observances that God is not pleased with. It is unacceptable. That is why James calls it unworthy. It is worthless, and God cannot accept it. Why? Because it's pagan worship. That is why I said to you, this sermon is going to be hard to hear, because there are a lot of people serving, and their heart has not been changed. They think that they're doing God a favor by coming to church. They think they're doing God a favor by giving. They think they're doing God a favor by helping, by doing stuff. And God says, you are worshiping yourself. That is idolatry and I'm not interested in it at all. A person who has no control over his tongue, but walks into the house of God and worships and sings and praises and prays, is engaging in idolatry in the house of God. This is why God can never accept it. It's unworthy because it does not flow from the work of God. It's trying to please God by doing work for God. It's unworthy. James is making the case that those who have been born of God, verse 18 they will have a worthy religion. But those who have not been born of God, they will live in self-deception and idolatry. That is hard to hear. Because I know some of you are struggling with your salvation. You're not sure if you are saved. The common way in which we say this is, there will be fruits of salvation. In other words, just do something. If I've ever counseled you like that, I ask for your forgiveness because that is wrong. If you are just doing something without your heart being changed, then we are encouraging you to perform idolatry. That which God hates. The only way that you're going to know that you are saved is by means of the scriptures. God, through His Word, by His Spirit, brings confirmation to the heart of His people because He is the one that places the believer in a trial, and by His maturing of that believer, brings assurance to the heart of the believer, You are mine. The only way that you're going to know that you're saved is if God throws you in the tumble dryer of trials and He bashes you about. And He crushes you with affliction. And if you endure, and if you walk faithfully, and if you remain true to your God, you are saved. Why? Because God produces endurance and perseverance. How do I know that? Count it all joy, too, my brothers, when you meet various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's the testing that produces steadfastness, not you. It is God, through your trials, who produces, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Why? Let God do his work in your life. Look at the last line. That you may be mature and complete. That's the word there, perfect and complete. You will know that you're saved as God is working your life through affliction. But what do we say when affliction comes? Lord, oh no, Lord, not now. The year's just begun. How on earth can I be going through this right now? No money. Why now, Lord? What does James say? Counted all joy. Why? Because God is working in your heart, He's confirming your faith. And those who are true will endure, those who are not will flee. It's not enough to just do. And James's main point here is that there is no control of the tongue, there is no control of the heart which means the heart has not been changed. This is why it is worthless. Unbelievers are those who have not come to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They have not bowed in humility before their Lord and God. But they come and they serve and perform idolatrous worship. That is hard. And that is a dangerous place to be in. They think somehow their works are commending them before God. But it's only piling up more judgment on the day of judgment. If you're not saved, there is salvation in Jesus Christ. In summary, James is saying that the person who has the notion or perception that his worship is true, but his heart is far from God, which is revealed in his speech, this person is not only blind, but is deceiving himself and engaging in idolatry rather than through worship. And God does not accept it. One author explains it this way. Quote, a professed Christianity that centers on the external expressions of faith, attendance at worship, rote prayers, church membership, participation in the ordinances, but is devoid of the regenerating power of the gospel, is as futile and as unprofitable as idol worship. Like that. If there's no change in the heart, it is no different to idol worship. These outward aspects are uh, are important as uh, expressions of personal faith, but they are useless apart from the Spirit's inner work. James sees the unbridled tongue and the deceived heart as concomitants that is uh, correlated, uh, coming out from each other, of empty, worthless religion. This... Is an unworthy religion. There is a worthy religion that God honors. There is a religion that God receives. But you'll have to come back next week as we look at verse 27. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. There is no other name by which we can be saved. And there are those who are not saved. We pray that you would save them this morning. We pray for those who have been serving. And doing, thinking that they have been saved. But in their heart, they know that their lives do not demonstrate true saving faith. When Monday comes, their salvation comes to an end. Lord, we pray for them. We pray for not only conviction, but that there would be a definite change in the way that they think about themselves. And in the way that they walk in obedience to the truth. Pray for us who are struggling with various sins, those who have been placed in affliction. Pray for those who are suffering at various levels. Mature us through your work. Grant us endurance and perseverance as a sign of true and saving faith. We pray that you would confirm to our hearts that we are yours as you put us in hardship and trials. And so we thank you, Lord, that whether we are saved or not saved, you are at work through the preaching of your word. That you are calling those who do not know you to become yours. And those who are yours and struggling, we pray that you would sanctify them by your word. Pray now, Lord, as we depart, that you would magnify your name through the preaching of your word. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.